This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, this is a very somber day. Um, and our show today is going to mark a number of events which we need to commemorate and discuss. But also in the broader context, you know, in this last 48 hours, the United States has been through multiple mass murders and mass shootings, including the murder of 10 African-American individuals by a white supremacist in Baltimore, in Buffalo, excuse me, as well as multiple other mass shootings in the United States, an expanding war in Ukraine, which is going to destabilize not only the economy, the world economy, but foods, food, uh, you know, abilities throughout the world. We're in the middle of a fifth wave of the COVID pandemic, and yet we're marking today in a very somber way, in a very profound way, in a very poignant way, the 74th anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba, or catastrophe, which began the 74-year journey of Israeli apartheid ethnic cleansing and extermination of indigenous Palestinians uh, throughout historic Palestine. This has been 74 years, and we're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking about, you know, the assassination and murder of Shireen Abu Akla, the Palestinian-American journalist for Al Jazeera, who was brutally killed uh, by what appears to be by all sources, uh, including some independent sources, uh, killed by an Israeli uh, bullet. I happen to believe it was a sniper. She was taken out deliberately, but we'll wait to hear about that. But she was murdered. She's a journalist. She's an American citizen. And of course, silence from the State Department, uh, nothing big, but we'll be talking about that. And lastly, we're going to be looking at an interview that you did with Mona Shateya, who is an advocacy advisor for the Arab Center for the Advancement of Social Media. She's going to be talking about her article on nowhere to hide the impact of Israel's digital surveillance regime on Palestinians, a very deep, important discussion. So we have a lot to talk today about, Jamal, and it's a very somber time. That's right, Jess, and, and we're, we're gonna, going to start you know, talking about Nakba. I mean, every year about the same time we talk about this. Every year on May 15th, as, as you know, Palestinians around the world mark the Nakba or uh, the catastrophe referring to the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948. And uh, for people who just don't know the background behind this, uh, uh, you know, this also marks the creation of the State of Israel or on uh, on May 14th. And this is as soon as the British mandate expired. Zionist uh, gangs, I would call them, declared the establishment of the State of Israel expelling at least 750,000 Palestinians from their homes and lands, uh, capturing 78% of historic uh, Palestine. And we know uh, at Annex in 1967, the remaining uh, 22% uh, of land was occupied uh, by Israel. Between 1947, Jess, and 1949, Zionist gangs uh, attacked major Palestinian cities and destroyed some 530 villages. Uh, About 15,000 Palestinians were killed in in mass uh, atrocities, and and we'll mention uh, a few. uh, I mean, the the most famous atrocity, Jess, was on April 9th, 1948, 
Zionist uh, forces committed one of the most infamous massacres of the war in the village of uh, Deir Yassin. Right. Uh, Deir Yassin is, lies on the outskirts of uh, western, I would say, western Jerusalem. More than 110 men and women, children were killed by the uh, Irgun and, and Stern gang Zionist uh, militias. And as a result of this, if we look at it, uh, there are some 6 million registered Palestinian refugees living in at least 58 camps uh, located throughout Palestine and neighboring countries, yes. And yeah, well, Jamal, I mean, it's a history that shouldn't be lost on anybody who pays attention to what's happening in the world right now, because many people in many different contexts are talking about brutal occupations and ethnic cleansings, uh, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's in, uh, uh, you know, uh, Myanmar, whether it's in Syria. I mean, there are lots of places right now, historically and currently, where this is occurring. But it does seem like every year we have to come back, we have to make mention of this, we have to uh, reestablish the historical reality of this ethnic cleansing 74 years now. And it seems like, and you know, this is part of the Zionist apartheid ideology, Jamal. This is something that uh, has been talked about for 74 years. The Zionist approach, the Israeli approach has been just, it's like a waiting game, right? They've said that the Palestinians will forget. That has been their aim for 74 years since they've attempted to ethnically cleanse the indigenous people of historic Palestine, the Palestinians. And here's the here's the breaking news for all Zionists and the people who believe in the apartheid state. Palestinians are not going to forget. We haven't forgotten. And uh, we will continue to tell this story. We'll continue to articulate it. And for generations on Jamal, the, the living memory of those massacres from 74 years ago in 1948 and then in 1967, and you know, to the present, um, up until the assassination of uh, you know Shireen uh, Abu Akla, and there's a there's a whole historical linkage from 1948 to her brutal assassination, has been an attempt by the apartheid regime to you know silence this history. And here's the other piece of news, Jamal: they're losing, they're losing this this war, this narrative war. Um, because the entire world has uh, begun this process of opening their eyes and getting over the denial of the apartheid practices of the Israeli regime and how they, in fact, are occupiers and have uh, attempted to ethnically cleanse historic Palestine. So, you know, in some ways, this 74 years, even though it's very painful to mark it at 74 years, and there's still many people alive, Jamal, many Palestinians alive today, who remember them, remember that ethnic cleansing, who remember Der Yassin, who remember Tentura, who remember all of the ethnic cleansing that went on in 1948. Um, that Those vivid uh, traumatic memories will never go away. That history will never go away. And Israel finally, finally is being called out on the carpet in many different domains, as we've been talking about on this show for many months, many years now, actually. Well, that's why, I mean, uh, we always say the Nakba or Al-Nakba is ongoing. It has not ended because started in 1948 or before actually 1948, but that's the marking point, 1948. 
And since then, many uh, transformations and things happened on the ground, including Al-Naqsa 1967, oppressing Palestinians, the transfer of settlers into occupied Palestinian territory, which is a violation of uh, uh, the Geneva Convention. And then uh, fast forwarding to really establishing an apartheid regime, because this is something, of course, uh, uh, you know, something we've talked about uh, on this show many times, uh, which is really the, uh, I don't want to call it the grand finale, but it's the pinnacle, the pinnacle when now we have leading international NGOs, Human Rights Watch, uh, etc., uh, Amnesty International, Israel's own uh, human rights organization, all of them saying that Israel is committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution against Palestinians. I, I say this is this is like the pinnacle. They've reached they've reached the pinnacle when you've they've transformed a country that they've usurped, a country that they have ethnically cleansed its population, not completely, but they are still they're still ethnically cleansing the population to really transform. If you think about it, it's the only apartheid regime in the world, and it's the first apartheid regime in the Middle East. So, so they have Israel has has done two things: they've introduced nuclear weapons to the Middle East, and they've and introduced apartheid apartheid to to the Middle East. And and uh, and maybe this is a good transition for us to talk about the latest atrocity. Sure, but before we get to that latest atrocity, and I think this may be a segue. Um, you know, with the and I want to connect it with the uh, the the mass murder and the white supremacy attack in Buffalo by this white supremacist, because you know what 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 people fail to truly recognize uh, in terms of the apartheid Zionist practices of the apartheid regime of Israel is its white supremacy roots and belief. You know, this uh, this eighteen year old that shot and killed and murdered these uh, ten African Americans. Well, not all of them are African Americans, but uh, just the to, majority. The majority. Yeah, the majority. Were, I yes. mean, but it was a hate crime. Well, it, what, it is an African American community that this terrorist, uh, white, white terrorist. supremacist, whatever you want to call him, drove. I think for three or four hours, going right. out of his way to go to the to target this community. So it is right. a hate crime. But what 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 was really, in my mind, very interesting about this analysis is that he believed in this replacement theory, right? This replacement theory that uh, white people have to be very concerned because the United States is being run over by people of color, is being run over by brown people, African-Americans, and is replacing the white majority. And it's kind of interesting to hear how not only that, that trajectory of replacement theory is becoming a dominant narrative in the mainstream media among the MAGA crowd and among Fox News. There's more than just an association with that white supremacy point of view, Jamal, and that theory of replacement, than the kind of rhetoric that we hear from uh, apartheid Israeli leaders. They talk about all the demographic anxiety that they feel about Palestinians having a lot of babies and, you know, growth rates and too many brown Palestinians and too many this. And, you know, part of the fervor of the Israeli, uh, you know, settler extremist uh, terrorist movement is based on a very similar notion of white supremacy. So I think we have a just 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 incidentally, there is an article in Haaretz today by an Israeli 
who discusses the, 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 that connection that you've made, the connection between what's with white supremacy in America and Jewish supremacy in Israel. Of course, Jamal, and I and it, it it's so the hypocrisy is stinks right now because you have all these politicians rushing out to condemn, as we all should, this uh, horrific, violent, ra- white supremacist, racist attack on this community in Buffalo. Yet silence, really deafening silence, when you have an apartheid regime, you have a Zionist ideology among the uh, 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 among you know the totality of Israeli leadership, who subscribe to very similar racist white supremacist ideas. They get the pass uh, somehow, Jamal, and I you know I think the linkage you know it needs to be made. We have to continue to make it, and that 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 becomes a segue to how is it, Jamal, that you know, a so-called ally of the United States can murder an American citizen, can assassinate. Well, well, I mean, it's all connected to this supremacy. Just, I mean, when a community feels superior to others or or the creation of the othering, what happens? It's the debasing of that other group, which means their lives don't count. Right. And and that's that's the whole concept that you see I mean, sadly, with the recent killing of Shirin Abu Akhle. But, you know, since uh, Shirin Abu Akhle was murdered by the Israelis, there were three others, three other Palestinians, and one of them is like a, a teenager, who were shot by, by Israel. This is an ongoing process. It's, it's a carte blanche basically to exterminate the other group, the other group that does not meet your standards per their, per their thinking. And this is what's going on. And And, of course... We want to talk about the killing of Shireen Abu Akhle, which has left uh, millions of people uh, just around the world, uh, at least those who with, with, uh, with a conscience, uh, speechless. It also made them angry. It made us angry. I mean, to, to, to just to, to think about the anger is not just because Israel committed uh, another uh, yet another, yet another, yet another, uh, yet another heinous, heinous crime, and murdered a wonderful and capable uh, journalist. We're not angry just because also Israel uh, has denied responsibility because they usually do that. This is kind of like the, you know, the knee-jerk reaction. Tell me when did Israel admit to its wrongdoing? Did they admit to their to its wrongdoing when they murdered these young boys playing soccer at the beach in Gaza? Did they no. admit the killing and the murder of Al-Durra, uh, no. you know, when his father was trying to shelter him and, 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 and hugging him when they murdered him in plain view? Did they admit wrongdoing when they murdered Rachel Corey, uh, an American uh, young lady who was an activist and who was a human rights activist trying to protect Palestinian farmers when they killed her? They've never admitted. So, so to me, there was no surprise. But I tell you why I'm angry. I'm angry because of our government, the United States. Exactly. And and this is where we're going to go back because Sharina Bakri never went on the air and said, "I'm an American citizen." You know, watch me. I'm. You know, she never like went around like wearing the American flag or the. She was a professional journalist covering the news, and then a lot of people are surprised to hear 
that she was an American citizen. A lot of people are surprised to hear that she was a Roman Catholic, you know, because Palestinians don't run around and say, we are Muslim, we're Catholic, we're Greek, Orthodox, we're this. They're just Palestinians. So all of a sudden, I got all these messages on my Facebook when I, oh, I didn't know that she was Christian. Oh, I didn't know that she was she she was an American that's citizen. That's not the way Palestinians are, Jamal. And that's not the way, but we have... You know, right here in the United States, our State Department, and I want to see if I can find the quote, how they received the news. Uh, yes, they said, oh, it's, it's terrible, uh, you know, that, that, she was, that she was killed, you know. And then when questioned, what are you going to do about this? Do you know what that was the answer? And this is from the spokesperson for the State Department. What? That Israel is capable to conduct its own investigation. What a joke. What a joke. What I a mean, imagine joke. this is like asking a, a rapist to conduct his own investigation, whether he raped, or to ask a murderer to conduct his own investigation, whether he murdered someone or not. And this is, again, I bring it back to the American citizen. She's an American citizen. She's a journalist protected by all kinds of agreements and, 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 and rights around the world. And the United States said, oh, we'll leave it to Israel. Israel is capable of conducting its own investigation. It's insulting. It's, it's, it's insult to injury to the memory and to the work of this extraordinary journalist, uh, Shireen Abouakla. I mean, you know, Jamal, I'm angry. You're angry. Uh, the world is angry at this brutal assassination. And if you look at the the details of how she was assassinated and murdered, it's even more painful because Shireen Abu Akhla was a, a consummate professional. She was wearing her press vest. She and her producer and her, uh, her, her team, her, her, her production team, you know, they, if you read the, the details, it's very clear. They don't make a move unless they uh, acknowledge the, you know, they, they, you know, connect with the Israeli military. The Israeli military knew they, they were there. They don't do anything. They wear their press outfits, their press gear, their press, you know, identifying. And apparently it doesn't matter to the Israeli uh, military. They will assassinate anybody. And, you know, Shireen's murder, Jamal, uh, has caused outrage. But we also, as it should, but we should also acknowledge the hundreds of Palestinian journalists that have died over the years. This is not the first, and tragically, it probably won't be the last. How many journalists were killed in Gaza in the last 10 years, Jamal? How many journalists have been wounded? How many journalists have been uh, arrested by the Israeli military? And we have this hypocrisy from the U.S. State Department and hypocrisy from the U.S. government about the the carte blanche, as you say, that they get away with doing this. It's just outrageous. I mean, I, I mean, the State Department wants to give uh, basically the, the lead to an apartheid regime. The military spoke, uh, spokesperson, uh, the Israeli military spokesperson, described Shireen and her colleague, uh, Ali Samodi, by the way, and this is the other journalist who was shot in the back, uh, as being armed with cameras, this armed is what he with said. Cameras. They're armed with cameras, like basically saying that they were justified in in, shoot, in shooting them, and and talking about, I mean, the anger because you know damn well that the Israelis shot her, but also you have 
two journalists who are eyewitnesses. You have Ali Samodi, who got shot in the back. You have another young journalist who was accompanying Shireen, who you could see her on camera, terrified to even approach her body. Uh, also, who witnessed and saw where the bullets came from. Then, of course, the Israeli Hasbara machine tried to say that the Palestinians were shooting, and then they were basically debunked by uh, Beth Salem, which showed that actually when they had skirmishes, that's the word, the skirmishes with Palestinian uh, resistance fighters, that was in a whole different area of, of Jenin, and they weren't nearby. And and so so that's where to to me is is like where the anger and then and then and then another group that I'm angry with not everyone but also many Western journalists who who try to downplay it or well don't get me started or, on that or Jamal. or not report the accurate oh, news or or basically started, take take verbatim the uh, Israeli uh, talking points and and but, and well, but we need to call that out. And I want to call out someone in particular, the CNN media specialist, Brian Stelter, did a whole segment on Shireen's murder and assassination. And it's supposed to be a media show, as you know, Jamal, and it's supposed to always present, you know, the classic, uh, you know, uh, the classic, uh, you know, fake journalist approach of both sides, uh, which he rarely does, obviously, when it comes to Palestinian uh, issues or Palestinian, uh, uh, you know, newsworthy events. But in this particular incident over the weekend, who did he uh, invite to come and talk about the murder of Shireen Abu Akla, a journalist uh, on his media show? The UN, the Israeli UN ambassador, where he gave him 10 minutes to free associate about anti-Semitism and why the apartheid regime of Israel needs to defend itself and do all these things. And absolutely nothing from any Palestinians, nothing from any representative, nothing from the so-called, you know, just universe of another point of view. And he had the audacity to say that he asked uh, uh, Al Jazeera for a comment, but Al Jazeera is not who he should be calling. He should be speaking with a Palestinian, a Palestinian voice about the ongoing murder of Palestinians. And, and why would Al Jazeera speak to him? I mean, because of anybody. their own reporter got murdered and they've been watching but CNN reporters and others how they basically were downpl- downplaying her mu- murder. I don't want to focus a lot on this because I will also want to focus on the good thing. Uh, Wait, can I just say one more thing? I'm sorry, just one thing. I'm sorry, I have to just bring this up. The Israelis never miss an opportunity to humiliate, embarrass, and degrade themselves even further because not only did they murder Shireen, but at her funeral, they decided to beat up the mourners in Jerusalem. And I think we need to to say something about that, Jamal. That's also something that needs to be noted. Even in an attempt to- This is connected to my point, Jess. I mean, this is exactly what I was going to talk about because millions, if not uh, a billion people around the globe watched the barbaric Israeli occupation police attacking the ball bearers, and 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 basically that takes you back. Now there is a new video showing them storming the French hospital. You know you're familiar with the French right, hospitals 
in Jerusalem, which by the way, hello, Mr. Macron, this is a French hospital. <laughs> just, just, just saying, you know, this is the French hospital, a hospital established by France in uh, the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of Jerusalem, storming it when the body was transferred from Jenin to there, basically. Imagine, there, the, I was like shocked. It wasn't one soldier, it wasn't two. It was like a whole battalion storming the hospital as the family basically was mourning the body and preparing the casket to take, to take her to, to burial. I mean, this is the, the scene starts right there. And then as soon as when, of course, when they had the casket prepared, what do you have? They had the casket with a large cross on the, on the casket, visible large cross on the casket. And the other part was the Palestinian f- flag, which is her national identity. And they started attacking. These are the pictures and the images that millions and millions of people have seen across the globe attacking the ball bearers. And I want to say something very important. That's what I said, the, the kind of the good news. In a way, I, I, I shouldn't be using the word good news, but the, I would say it's something I was very uh, proud of seeing these ball bearers. You saw the casket wobbling, tilting, the trying to, you know, I mean, it was horrific. And these young men and women who were around there, they held the casket high. They wouldn't let it. They were getting beaten on the knees, on the legs, and wouldn't let it be yeah. thrown on the ground. That was the intention. And of course, the other part that I saw that Palestinians from all over, all over, and 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 and, and uh, you know different religious groups, and we all, all marching in that funeral. I mean, when uh, taking her all the way to the burial, uh, you know, Catholics praying, Armenians, uh, Greek Orthodox, Muslims, all giving her the send off of the millions and Israel, and you could see them all the way right at the front of the cemetery, one that I'm very familiar with, uh, basically not too far from my family's uh, occupied compound where she was buried in the, in the Catholic uh, cemetery right there. They were trying to stop the mourners from entering. And, well, and, 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 and they just refused. So the thousands and thousands of them basically pushed their way to give her a final an honorable, basically, burial. I would say, historically, Palestine hasn't seen something like this for for many years since the death of uh, Faisal Husseini or Qasim, uh, I think, Musa, Musa Qasim al-Husseini back then. And, and I think that was very important for them to show how, basically, they they were able to honor her. I think that was well said, Jamal, and spot on. I mean, the fact that uh, Shireen was laid to rest with dignity and respect uh, was extraordinary in the context of the ugliness of the apartheid regime's attempt to sully such an important, meaningful, and deeply personal uh, loss for not just Palestinians, Jamal, but for people all over the world. And, you know, I, I preface that by saying, This apartheid regime, this brutal regime, never misses an opportunity to show its true colors. I mean, it's bad enough to murder and to assassinate a journalist, but then to come to her funeral and try to disrupt the bringing of the casket from a hospital to her final resting place is the epitome of the ugliness of the apartheid regime's soul. I mean, that's really what we're talking about, Jamal. This is... I. 
I think it's important because it typifies the soul of an apartheid regime, but it also typifies the soul of the resilience and the steadfastness and the powerfulness of the Palestinian desire, wish for freedom, dignity, and self-determination. And I think you saw two of these side by side. The whole world saw it, Jamal. And it's interesting because I think, you know, the the Israeli, the Jerusalem police chief, you know, said, well, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, it was chaos and it was, you know, they were throwing things. And, and of course, they had the video. There was no throwing of rocks. They were dignified. There were some plastic bottles that were being thrown. And of course, plastic bottles, Jamal, you know, are very scary to Israeli military police who are fully geared up and have, you know, M16 weapons. I mean, it for me, it was a perfect manifestation of, of what we're talking about in terms of the Nekba, the Nexa, the occupation, white supremacy, and, and all of this can be boiled down into this important moment of Shireen uh, coming to her final resting spot. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Uh, just we have a, a very uh, good interview with a guest here, uh, Munash Tayyeh. She's a Palestinian digital rights defender, and she wrote an excellent article in the Middle East uh, Institute, uh, Nowhere to Hide the Impact of Israel's Digital Surveillance Regime on the Palestinians. Let's watch uh, the interview. Edward Said wrote, knowledge of subject races is what makes their management easy and profitable. Knowledge gives power, more power requires more knowledge. Starting in 1940 with the village files, Israel has adhered to this strategy to occupy and colonize Palestine. The Israeli occupation forces currently employ digital surveillance systems that invade every aspect of Palestinian daily existence, leaving them no reprieve. In her recent article in the Middle East Institute, Nowhere to Hide, the impact of Israel's digital surveillance regime on the Palestinians, Munashtaya details Israel's surveillance methods and how it uses Palestinians as test subjects to market its technology internationally. Munashtaya is a Palestinian digital rights defender working in the MENA region. She works as an advocacy advisor at the Arab Center for the Advancement for social media. She's a master's candidate in social media and digital communications at the University of Westminster. Welcome to Arab Talk, Mona. Thanks, Jamal. Thanks for this introduction and for hosting me here. So about 20 years ago, technology ushered in an era of invasive uh, digital surveillance by uh, the Israeli occupation forces that is now uh, ubiquitous in Palestinian territory. Uh, please explain. So, yeah, basically, if we are speaking about the Israeli state or the Israeli uh, surveillance state, we can. It, it did not start like recently because recently in the in the last two years, basically, we saw like a groundbreaking uh, reports and investigations about the surveillance in Israel, but. 
it did not start just two years ago. It, it started like way before that. Uh, and basically, we can start from when the unit 8,200, uh, like it's a military unit, started to collect data about Palestinians for military services. And this is part of how they are uh, controlling the population, how they are controlling Palestinians. Basically, this is kind of digital militarism where we Palestinians are being controlled in our online spaces and offline spaces. We are controlled in the streets while we are walking and there are the CCTV cameras watching us, making the facial recognitions. And what, when we are stopped in the, um, in the checkpoints, military checkpoints, and they are taking pictures of our faces and our IDs to put that in their uh, Blue Wolf um, uh, application, which is basically, they call it, as a Facebook for Palestinians because they are collecting our data there. Or if we are in the digital spaces and they are watching that, they are monitoring that either for surveilling us and taking down our content or for interrogating us and arresting us based on what we are writing on the social media platforms and ending up with the malwares and the spywares that they are testing that on Palestinians before selling that to worldwide. So we are talking about wide range of surveillance tools and products that the Israelis are developing. They are really having a pioneer role where they are testing that on Palestinians before they're selling that worldwide. Tell us uh, about philosopher Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon and how his concept has been used in societies to control many uh, by a few. So basically the concept of Panopticon for those who who don't know that basically it's like a prison around the prison a circular one that has a prison cells there and at the center of this prison there is um like a watchtower where the guard is standing there um this uh, this guard he has the right or they can see prisoners in those uh, prison cells while those prisoners they don't know if they are now watched or surveilled or not. So, quote unquote, they are trying to behave in their best way so this guard can see them like in their best behavior. Um, and based on that, they basically, they are changing their behavior. And this is how we Palestinians are being surveilled all the time. They sometimes, they, they are watching us all the time in order to create this kind of feeling that we are watched and based on that, we are changing our behavior and changing uh, what we want to, to write and so on. And this is basically is not only affecting, because people usually connect the surveillance with the right to privacy, it's not only like um, violating our right to privacy. It's also violating other digital rights, like our right, for example, to freedom of expression. Because we Palestinians have this kind of feeling of chilling effect where we see other people are being interrogating, interrogated and arrested based on what like Israelis uh, have surveilled them or watched them in a specific time. And based on that, we are changing our behavior and we sometimes prevent ourselves from sharing our political opinion uh, because we are afraid of being watched or surveilled. So basically, we are changing our behavior. We have the chilling effects. Our right to privacy is really uh, violated all the time. So basically, we are talking about so many things. And 
lately, like at the end of the last year, there was another groundbreaking uh, investigation that shows that the Israeli, they have uh, the ability to uh, to watch and to monitor, to monitor basically all the phone calls in the West Bank. And they are putting bugs in every mobile device that is injuring Gaza Strip. And that said, that means that they are also spying on us when we are talking to, to our family, our beloved ones, and basically when we are sharing our intimate moments with them. That That's a, basically that changed the whole idea of sharing things with our people and with our families. And because of that, we are not like feeling free to talk about anything that we want to share because we have this kind of uh, surveillance effect all the time. And this is basically the, surve- the surveillance effect is the panopticon effect because this is the idea of that. You feel that you are watched all the time, even if they are not watching you or surveilling you. So you will start practicing basically self-censorship because they're using uh, psychological in this aspect, psychological warfare, but also the, in, in the technical warfare, which uh, uh, we'll talk about this also more like, uh, for example, what is the data base Wolfpack and its associated app, uh, Blue Wolf, uh, Blue Wolf you, you wrote about this. Yeah, basically the Blue Wolf is an initiative. It started two years ago when the whole world was fighting COVID, um, COVID uh, pandemic. The Israelis were trying to develop a new uh, initiative to surveil on Palestinians. And the main idea of it started basically in Hebron, where they were uh, taking pictures of people and their IDs uh, when they are passing or moving in in Hebron. Uh, And they are sending that into like... um, um, like a servers uh, into servers where they are keeping this kind of database about Palestinians. They are digitizing our IDs and our our data. And later, like this year, we've heard about moving this initiative to other places around the West Bank. So now they are doing that all over the West Bank. They are digitizing people's data. So we we are also kind of inhumanized because they are seeing us as data so because it make it easier for them to control us as palestinians they just have our ids our numbers our data and they are managing that based on on our data and uh, basically this blue wall thing is a very dangerous uh, is a very dangerous tool where, where they are doing that and later on they started doing that also for foreigners who are going into the west bank that's very recent and that was not added to my article basically the other thing is they have another application it's called the white wolf the white wolf is not for the military services it's and with a blue wolf whenever they enter they are entering their your id and um, it, it, it kind of show show them um like uh, a rating of if you are uh, forming a security threat for them or not based on that you can pass or not or like they know how to deal with you uh, on the other hand there is another application it's called the white wolf and this is basically used by the settlers uh, who's like taking Palestinians to work in their illegal settlements and they are doing the same thing they are taking pictures of the Palestinians IDs and they can see if you are a security threat for them or not and that's that's really dangerous because like we are just classified if we are 
security threats or not for them and based on their definition for a security threat or something. So it's kind of inhumanizing also beside like the violation of all our rights and the censorship. You talk about uh, also about how they feed uh, this database. You mentioned a data entry uh, shift quota for Israeli soldiers. 50 Palestinians photographed without their consent. Talk about this. Yeah, basically, they are taking those pictures without our consent. They are not asking for a consent to do that. We are forced to be like, they just take a picture. They will ask for your ID and they will take a picture for that without asking you for your permission because, like, we are inhumanized. This is the one thing. The other thing is... Uh, they are uh, they are competing. So at the Washington Post investigation, they said that uh, the the army so the soldiers were saying that they are competing to take more pictures, uh, more data about Palestinians. But later on in uh, another investigation, they said that they were asked for um, a, for a quota which is fifty ID per day and fifty ID for each soldier. That means like. Thousands of Palestinians are being digitized every single day in the West Bank. And that's like that's horrifying. That is scary because if they are not if they are not meeting the quota, they can't leave their shifts. They are asked to stay there till they complete their quota and then they can go home. They don't have to ask for a consent or anything else. So basically they are racing. Um, who's gonna violate Palestinians' right to privacy more and who's gonna like take more data about the for, for like from Palestinians and that said that Palestinians are like are treating and and like less than humans in this case because when it comes to surveillance there are like so many books and articles and essays wrote about surveillance from the the like from the security sense or the from the security angle but also from the capitalist angle and when we are talking about securitization and militarization and um and capitalism it's connected we know that at the back end it's connected because it's it's all about like data is the new fuel for people like like big tech companies are trading people's data so when it comes to a surveillance state like israel they can profit from that like we don't know how they are treating our data like by the gdpr the european law for uh, for the for protecting data like one of the things that people have the right to is not only the right to know that their data is collected, but also how their data is being processed, where it's used, where it's not used. If they came out, like if someone is, is collecting their data and they came out with results, people have the right to know what kind of results uh, th- this body like got out of their data. Palestinians do not have do not have any of the, those rights. So basically we are treated less than humans in, in this surveillance state. And that, that that means like it's really affecting our behavior, our 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 psychology and how we are dealing with everything behind us and basically affecting our trust with each other and our trust with like other communities and governments and so on. You if you actually in, in your article you write about this, you 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 talk about Israel using Palestinians as a laboratory to test and demonstrate the effectiveness of its digital surveillance technologies to to market them. And we know, uh, you know, we've seen also with other different things like the Elbit systems uh, as an example. 
but also what I'm also interested in this whole psychological aspects evoking the Panopticon or even George Orwell's 1984. Uh, what are the long-term psychological implications of feeling constantly watched? So I can tell you something when Edward Snowden um, spoke about the surveillance thing in the before. Um, it was like it was uh, reported that people reduced their search about specific words and topics like Al Qaeda, Hezbollah, and anything like any keywords that might be watched and could put them or classify them as a security threat. And that said, that means that people's psychology is really affected when they know that they are watched. And that's exactly the same thing is happening in Palestine with Palestinians. For example, last year we have published a report about CCTV cameras in Jerusalem. And one of the women there, when we were interviewing her, she said, that she's putting her hijab inside her home because she feels that the CCTV camera is watching her home, like her, her is watching her inside her home. And putting hijab inside home in a Muslim community is a bit like weird because this is the only place where women like basically feel safe to take off their hijab. And they are changing like this kind of trust thing, and this uh, this 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 um, safe feeling for us inside our homes, and feeling watched and surveilled all the time is also affecting uh, not only behavior but also trust. So basically, it also kind of make people that um, they sometimes they lose uh, their like their hope about their data or they start to think that their data is not important or they don't have something to hide. And those who think that who they don't care about privacy because they don't have something to hide are the same people who say that they don't care about the freedom of speech because they don't have something to say. But whenever they have something to say, it's too late because they can't say it because these repressive regimes are like, are growing and are getting stronger and stronger. And it's the same happening now with the privacy. People feel like, yeah, I don't have something to hide even if they spy on me. Now you have your intimate moments with your family and your beloved ones, something private and you should like, you can share it if you want, but you don't have to, it, it doesn't have to be shared with them if you don't want to share it. So basically it's affecting us. It's even affecting Palestinians when they are speaking on the phone and it's, basically affecting more the weaker or the marginalized groups like women and the LGBTQ people because when whenever like when we saw that um that Israel can monitor all the phone calls in the West Bank, we knew that and it was mentioned in that report that they basically are uh, spying on the LGBTQ people uh, so they can um, work on them psychologically and sometimes they are intimidating them and threatening them to for 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 specific reason. We all know how the colonized and how occupation is working basically with with those uh, vulnerable vulnerable co communities so basically it's affecting the marginalized groups more and more well uh, 
some might argue, especially since we learned this recently from Israeli media, that also Israel surveys its own population, spies its on its own Jewish population. But there are red lines, right? So when it comes to its citizens, though, tell us about the why face recognition technology was ruled against in the Israeli Supreme Court. Yeah, basically, the facial recognition was refused there, and people they were like talking about that, and policymakers they were like they were against that basically because it's damaging the uh, the image of the only democracy in the Middle East. Basically, that how they how they are like having this kind of positioning for for themselves, but. If we if we like dig, like just go deeper into that, we know that, uh, and there was another report like two years ago that was published uh, that shows that Shabak, which is the uh, Israeli intelligence service, they were spying on their uh, people's mobile phone calls since 2002. I mean, before the whole thing of the smartphones and the new devices started, they were spying on the. On, on every phone call since 2002. So it's basically affecting everyone who's living under the surveillance state. But it's there is, as you mentioned, there is a red lines when it comes to their population because they have this kind of red red lines uh, when it comes to their people as quote like as like as again like this this bring us to the discrimination against Palestinians and dehumanizing Palestinians. And how they see Palestinians as like less than human. Well, it's part of part, it... part of the whole concept of apartheid, right? So there are two sets of rules for the Jewish Israelis and a set of rules for Palestinians. Yeah, basically because of that, I mentioned that some groups are affected more than others. So when we are talking about West Bank and Gaza Strip, women are LGBTQ are affected more. But when we are talking about Israel, Palestinian communities there are also affected more because they know, like, you know, even in the ICT infrastructure, Palestinians in the West Bank are still using the 3G. Palestinians in Gaza Strip, they are still using uh, 2G. In Israel, their people are using 5G, but if you go there, if you check the infrastructure there, many of the Palestinian communities, they don't have access to decent internet there. And that doesn't happen anywhere in the Jewish communities or in the illegal Israeli settlements. It's only happening within the Palestinian communities inside Israel and the Palestinians, for, for sure, the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza Strip. And this brings us back to the whole idea of controlling infrastructure, because controlling infrastructure like cancel any idea of protecting people's privacy. And this is like the roots of uh, of the of the issue and of 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 the problem because if they have a um, like hegemony, let's say over our infrastructure, that means that we we don't know what kind of data they have access to and what kind of data they don't have access to, and at any point they can stop. Um, uh, stop our access or prevent us from accessing the internet and I believe like I don't know if you heard about that but last month Palestine was ranked as the slowest internet in the world uh, that's based on the uh, internet speed index 
And that means, and I don't know if you remember, but last uh, month also we have all the escalations on the ground and all the human rights violations. If we just zoom out a little bit and think about how Palestinians are documenting and sharing all the human rights violations that they are exposed to on the ground, on the social media, we know that the slower internet is also affecting our narrative on the social media, affecting how we share things, affecting our lives when we are uh, going like live streaming on the social media platforms and it affects the quality and so on. So basically it's, as I mentioned, people just connecting surveillance with the right to privacy, but it's connected with every single thing in our life, with the self-censorship, with the trust, with the psychology, with the behavior and so on. So basically it's affecting everything. In the shorter term, it's like affecting like just putting hijab. Some people might say it's just putting hijab or it's just like preventing yourself from posting something on in social media. But on the longer term, it will like damage how the society is working. It will also damage the trust relationship between the members of the society themselves because they they have this kind of fear of sharing anything with others. So people will keep everything to themselves and they are not sharing that with others. And basically that's so dangerous. And it also uh, like prevents us from, now it's preventing us or it's restricting us from mobilizing ourselves. But on the longer term, it might like have th this chilling effect might prevent people from thinking about mobilizing for political change or for human rights uh, documentation and so on. Uh, personal privacy and information protection is a subject of concern, not to Palestinians, but uh, everyone uh, worldwide, right? So what makes it particularly nefarious in repressive and totalitarian regimes? So basically, when it comes to to collecting data, personal data worldwide, it's connected, as I mentioned from before, with uh, with using people's data for the profit. How big tech companies are profiting from people's data when they are uh, targeting their ads. Like if we are talking about social media platforms, basically they are collecting people's data so they can make more profit when they are targeting make their targeted ads for the right person who really needs that. But when it comes to the repressive regimes, it's totally different because this data is basically being used for militarization and securitization of those spaces, of digital spaces. And we know that so many countries are using that. Basically, if we are just like, think about around us, like in the Arab world, uh, if we like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, they bought surveillance technologies and basically NSO and Pegasus spywares from the Israelis to spy on their political opponents, their journalists and their human rights defenders as Israel is using that. And even if we are talking about the larger scale, if we just look at how China is now surveilling everything there, how how people's data is also being used. Like people now, they don't have access in China to other social media platforms. They have their own social media platforms. And who knows those social media platforms, how they are dealing with the government and how they are treating people's data. So basically repressive regimes are usually taking care of people's data or they are like, having access or like minding having access to people's data from a security and militarization um, 
perspective. And when when we say uh, security, people might might say that yeah, security is good because they they want to protect us. No, they want to protect themselves as a repressive regimes. It's not only it's not at all about protecting people because if it's about protecting people, then protecting people's data and people's a right to privacy is the first thing should be taken into consideration before thinking about protecting this repressive regime. Monastaya, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thanks a lot for hosting me. That's the voice and the face of Mona Shataya. She's a digital uh, rights expert, actually, focusing on how the Israeli digital surveillance regime that's part of the apartheid regime, their digital surveillance. It what it what it what it what it really sounds like, Jamal, is using Palestinians as guinea pigs, you know, for digital surveillance and then using that and packaging it and selling it, uh, marketing themselves as being able to do this to other thuggish, uh, theocratic, autocratic, and thuggish regimes all over the world. So I I guess uh the apartheid regime never misses an opportunity, Jamal, to use their occupation to market themselves and to make money off of their occupation. You're absolutely right. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.